Hello and welcome to the Explanation Podcast, and this week's episode is the prelude to Sylvia and I having to make an apology video because we got cancelled on WeChat. What? It's a reference to John Cena and other people's apologies. I know. My name is Ian Stevens. I am a writer, a YouTuber, and you can find me on YouTube at the Lucretia Report and on my website, lucretiareport.com. And I am Silvia Salazar from Tono Latino. I love researching and learning what's going on in U.S. politics so I can share that with you and pique your curiosity a little bit so you want to dig more into politics and how they affect your daily life. You can find me at tono.latino on Instagram or tonolatino.com. And of course, be sure to follow the show on Twitter at explanation underscore pod, on Instagram at the explanation pod, and on Facebook at the explanation podcast. And if you ever want to tell us what you think or give us ideas, email us at info at the explanation pod dot com. That was yep. it, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. So today's episode is going to be a little similar to our Canada episode, but instead of talking about Canada and the U.S. relationship with Canada, we're going to be talking to perhaps the most important other country in the world, China. Worry about China in the United States and the U.S. establishment has now spanned three administrations. Barack Obama famously had his pivot to Asia, which didn't really amount to much. Donald Trump had his trade war with China, and now Joe Biden has taken on that mantle. Biden's framed much of his foreign policy around competition with China, even saying in March that, quote, China has an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, the most powerful country in the world. That is not going to happen on my watch because the United States is going to continue to grow. The problem for Mr. Biden, of course, is that depending on how you measure it, that may have already happened. And if you measure it the other ways, then it seems like it might be an unstoppable phenomenon. China's GDP has doubled since 2011. It's tripled since 2008. If you measure by purchasing power parity, which is an economic measurement where you try to adjust GDP based on the currency and cost of living in different countries, that measure would have China's GDP already surpassing that of the United States. And even if you measure by nominal dollars, it's still catching up pretty quickly. China has 1.4 billion people, like one in six people in the world live in China, and arguably the second most powerful military in the world and the fastest growing military in the world. China is already one of the most dominant political forces in the world in a country that simply cannot be ignored. So I think I'm going to structure this the same way that we did the Canada episode. I'm going to start with a basic overview of the Chinese government system, and then I'm going to go into three issues that you will probably have already heard about or will hear about if you watch the news much and hear them talking about China at all, especially as China comes up more and more in the news that you'll probably hear about. And today, those three issues are going to be the issue of Taiwan, the issue of the territorial disputes in the South and East China Seas, and the issue of trade and intellectual property, which I've kind of grouped together, but could be their own issues. Oh, I love that. I actually was curious about Taiwan and wanted to learn more. So I can't wait. Taiwan is a very interesting story. So let's start with an overview of the Chinese political system, because that is something that I don't think that very many people at all understand. And even if you're someone who studies it professionally, there's so much secrecy about the internal politics 
And like the kind of things you would hear about in the American news about like, oh, the president is pressuring Joe Manchin or like, you know, this is what Mitch McConnell thinks and people think Mitch McConnell won't do this. That kind of interpersonal politics in China, it does exist, but it's kept behind closed doors and kept very secretive. And even if you're someone who like follows this stuff professionally, it's very hard to know what the actual like relationships, what each member of the Politburo's views are and what the politics within the Communist Party are in China. One thing that might make this a little bit confusing is that in China, there are kind of two parallel power structures that are both separate and overlap a lot. There's the government and the party. If you look at the government power structure, the supreme body of that is the National People's Congress, which is like their unicameral legislature. It's like our Congress, but it only has one house. It is responsible for approving every law in China. It has 2,980 members, which is insane, and makes it the largest legislative body in the world. And it meets for two weeks every year. Just two weeks? Yes. And they get it, they get it done. Kind of. That's very efficient. Kind of. So two weeks every year is not very much, like you're saying. No. So what usually happens is that a smaller body within the National People's Congress, which is called the National People's Congress Standing Committee, and it has 175 members, it does all the kind of like drafting of the laws and all of their like real work behind the legislature. The 175 members of the Standing Committee are full-time legislators like that's their whole job and they throughout the year get all of this work done and then for those two weeks every year the larger almost 3,000 member National People's Congress is kind of a rubber stamp of what the standing committee has given to them and it's very rare that the standing committee comes out with something that the National People's Congress doesn't overwhelmingly vote in favor of and to be clear, though, while the standing committee is, you know, they're full-time legislators, a lot of the members of the NPC do have other government jobs. Like, they might be administrators or, you know, be running some part of a cabinet department or some, you know, city or be other powerful figures in China. And then for that short period of time each year, they're also legislators. Under law... The Chinese constitution makes the Communist Party of China or Chinese Communist Party. There's a lot of debate about which one of those is the correct name, CPC or CCP. The way it's translated, the way Chinese grammar works, either one of them is equally correct, I think. Like, the grammar is not the same. If you were to directly translate it, it would be like the China Communist Party because of the way grammar works in that language. But just... To get at, I'm going to use those interchangeably because I know some people get upset if you call it the one they don't think is right. It's officially the ruling party of China under the law, under their constitution. It says that that party is the ruling party of China. And they have about 70% of the seats in the National People's Congress. But there are eight minor parties. Now, these parties do all agree with the CPC. They are aligned. And the party ideology of all eight of these is socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is the same official ideology of the CPC. What these are mostly for is three things. For kind of issue-based parties, the way that... Think of like the Green Party is primarily a party that is about the environment. 
there are some of these parties that are issue based and like their purpose is to advocate for a particular thing. For example, the Revolutionary Committee of the Chinese Kuomintang. It is a party that advocates primarily for reunification with Taiwan and pushes in the government for that to happen. They are a way to get out of party experts to basically advise the National People's Congress. So people who are like scientists, business professionals, or like engineers, people who know a lot, subject matter experts who are not members of the Communist Party, they can still be brought into the conversation through these eight minor parties. And the third reason is just for appearances, because they can say that like there are competition, there are other parties that exist. But these eight parties together make up about 30% of the seats in the NPC, and the CPC controls about 70% of the seats in the NPC alone. So those parties do exist. The second parallel power structure is the power structure of the party, of the Chinese Communist Party. And it is led by the Politburo, which is, think of it like the DNC or the RNC. It's the people that get selected by the party to be the leaders of the party. And then just like the NPC, they have a standing committee at the top, which is made up of seven people. And the Politburo Standing Committee is usually considered to be the seven most powerful people in China. They're the people that really are the movers and shakers. For example, if someone was going to decide that they wanted to change the leader of China, the president, if they want decide they wanted to not have Xi Jinping be the president anymore, it would have to be the Politburo Standing Committee that decided that. It's not always totally clear where the lines of power are, because since this party is the official ruling party and controls the government branch, the the line of like where is what is party power and what is government power is kind of blurred. And there's a lot of overlap, like the Politburo Standing Committee is usually also very powerful members of the government. They have like cabinet positions and stuff. And a lot of members of the Politburo are also in the National People's Congress and vice versa. And they're kind of meshed together to create two complementary power structures. Does that make sense? It's a little bit complicated. It sounds very complex. The whole thing. It is. Um, so basically think of it, basically think of it almost like two governments that are both working together towards the same goal, but you need both of them to agree to do things. Is that a good explanation? Well, theoretically, you could say that the U.S. has something similar. If you just describe it that way, you know what I mean? So what are the two different governments? Well, not as governments, but you theoretically have Congress trying to do one thing and then the White House trying to do something. And theoretically, they are all for the well-being of the people of the United States. Now, whether they work together or not work together, that's a different story. I guess in a way, I don't know if that's a perfect translation because we're going to get into the executive here in a second, but like... So imagine if that, but Congress reported to the White House, like the president was Congress's boss. But depending on who is the majority party in Congress, they kind of yeah do. Yeah, so okay. that's why I'm like, that kind of sounds like what we have here, even though here there seems to be 
more freedom on each side. Eh. Depending on who's majority in Congress or in the White House, then it could or not be the case. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess in, in a way. Um, think of it like there are two different ways to get to the top of Chinese politics. You can do it through the People's Congress or you can do it through the Politburo. And where, like, which one is responsible for what is not always totally clear, but they generally work together. They work hand in hand. Okay. Then we need to get into the executive. The official head of government in China is the premier, who is appointed by the National People's Congress. And that right now is a guy named Li Keqiang. He's the official leader of the China, of the government side, not the party side, but the government side of those two power structures. And the president is supposed to be a ceremonial position under the law. It's supposed to be, think of it like in our Canada episode, the premier would be the prime minister and the president would be the governor general. But in practice, it doesn't really work like that because... The president of China, who is Xi Jinping, is also the general secretary of the Communist Party. And so that's the title where he really draws his power from. And in a way, you could think of it as being like that Li Keqiang is the leader of the government side and Xi Jinping is the leader of the party side. But because the party controls 70% of the seats in the government... Xi Jinping has more effective power than Li Keqiang. Xi Jinping is also the leader of the Central Military Commission, which makes him commander-in-chief of the military, which we will talk uh, briefly more about in a moment. And Li Keqiang is a member of the Politburo Standing Committee, as is Xi Jinping. And as a member of the Politburo Standing Committee, that also makes him subordinate to Xi Jinping as the General Secretary of the Communist Party. This gets into... An interesting question, I think, which is, is Xi Jinping the dictator of China? He often is referred to as the dictator of China, and China is often referred to as a dictatorship. I don't know if that's necessarily true, though, because to me, the word dictatorship implies absolute power in a single person. And while Xi definitely has more personal power than his predecessors, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, he still has to answer to primarily those seven people I talked about, the Politburo Standing Committee. Well, he's one of those seven people. So those six, those six other people of the Politburo Standing Committee. Like I said, if they all decide that they don't want him to be their leader anymore, they can get rid of him. And in order for him to do things, he can't do things that he doesn't have their approval for. And he still can't pass laws without the approval of the NPC and the NPC Standing Committee. They still have to vote for it. I mean, especially the NPC Standing Committee has to be convinced of that. So he still does have, he still has to answer to people within the party structure. And he is not, he's not infallible. Like, it's not like Kim Jong-un where, like, there's no political structure in North Korea that could possibly take down Kim Jong-un without a military coup. There are political structures in China that could take down the paramount leader, which is what we generally refer to as like the top leader of China because there's all these different titles we're talking about. Didn't he recently modify things so that he could pretty much stay in power as long as he wanted, though? He did. So he they abolished the term limits so that he can remain president and general secretary 
until he dies, basically. And they basically wrote him into the Constitution. That is a more of a symbolic thing than anything else. So there are three paramount leaders of China that are mentioned in the Chinese Constitution. They are Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and Xi Jinping. And the way that they're mentioned is basically in like the guiding principles of China, where they're basically saying we are guided by Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping thought, and Xi Jinping thought. And it basically kind of makes his worldview like the official part of the official ideology of China. Got it. The last kind of weird power structure I want to talk about in China is the Central Military Commission, which is essentially the like the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States, the leaders of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the People's Armed Police, which is a national paramilitary organization. And it's headed by Xi Jinping, who is the chairman of the Central Military Commission. But it kind of is part of both of those power structures. So it simultaneously reports to both the People's Congress and the Politburo. And it's kind of in the middle of the two parallel power structures we've been talking about. There is a certain amount of elections in China. The way that it works is you get to vote for your local leaders, the local members of your party committee. Uh, in your city or your district, for instance. And then higher level people than that are indirectly elected. So imagine if you got to vote for your city council, but then your city council, they voted on who your member of Congress was going to be, who your governor was going to be, all of that stuff. It is a little bit like what you described on Canada, that you don't elect the prime minister, you elect your local leaders, and then they decide who is the ruler of the party, and then whoever has the majority is the prime minister. It is kind of like that, and it's also kind of similar in the way that the party chooses who the candidates are going to be. So they have election committees in China, which essentially like have the ability to approve or disapprove any candidates. The same way that in Canada, like the conservative party tells you who your conservative party nominee is going to be, and the liberal party tells you who your liberal party nominee is going to be. Kind of like Canada's election structure if they only had one party that well if they only had one major party um, but then also like instead of the level you vote for being your member of parliament the level you vote for is basically like your city council is that all clear i know this is a little bit confusing <laughs> well i i'm curious about the other things so yeah so let's get into those issues so the first one i want to talk about is taiwan and if you've seen celebrities making these apology videos, um, it's usually because they said something about Taiwan. John Cena's famous one, for instance, was because while he was doing an interview to promote his new movie, he was doing the interview in Taiwan, he said, it's great to be in your country. And a bunch of people on Chinese social media were like, it's not a country! <laughs> um, and this dispute goes back to the Chinese Civil War, which happened, it started before World War II, then they kind of put it on pause when Japan invaded China, and then they picked it back up after Japan was defeated. And in that war between the Kuomintang, which was the Chinese nationalists that were supported by the United States, Great Britain, and the Communist Party, which was supported by the Soviet Union, the Communist Party defeated the Kuomintang led by Chiang Kai-shek. And when the Kuomintang was defeated, they fled to the island of Taiwan and set up a government in exile there. And officially speaking, Taiwan does not even consider itself to be 
the country of Taiwan. The official name of Taiwan is the Republic of China because officially speaking, they view themselves as the legitimate government of all of China. So they consider that they are the rulers of all of China and China considers themselves the rulers of China and Taiwan. They consider themselves to be the rightful rulers of all of China. So they don't think that they like have effective power in mainland China. They think that they should be ruling China. Technically speaking, this is this is a little bit of a culture war in Taiwan. We're going to get to in a second. And so for a long time, Taiwan was essentially a government in exile, a Chinese government in exile that always had aspirations to reconquer China. And because the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek, which fled to Taiwan, they were the side of the civil war supported by the Americans. America has always had very deep ties with Taiwan. Shortly after the Civil War, we signed the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty, which recognized Taiwan as the government of China and said basically that if anyone attacked Taiwan or China, that we would we would come to their aid, kind of like, you know, the situations we have with Japan or Korea. That was allowed to expire in 1980 because the year before that, we had recognized China, the People's Republic of China, as the legitimate government of China. So we had moved our recognition over from the Republic of China, Taiwan, to the People's Republic of China, China, and basically said, okay, we still only recognize one China, but we're going to recognize this China and say that in the American eyes, Taiwan is an autonomous province of China, which is how the American government officially views Taiwan. But we also, at that same time, passed the Taiwan Relations Act in Congress, which, while not recognizing Taiwan as a country, still said that we will support Taiwan militarily. And it said, basically, that if you were to make a decision not to support Taiwan in the instance they're attacked, that Congress would have to approve that decision, that the president couldn't do that single-handedly. However, after all this time, Taiwan has grown to effectively be an independent country. For all intents and purposes, they behave as an independent country. And over time, the idea that they should one day reconquer China has become increasingly less and less popular in Taiwan as they have developed an independent identity and more and more people have come to view themselves as Taiwanese instead of viewing themselves as Chinese. There are two major political parties in Taiwan, the Kuomintang, the ones that were the ones that originally fled from China, and the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. For a long time, the Kuomintang were the only people that ever won anything. And they were able to maintain a peace with China through the policy of three no's. Those were no unification with the PRC, no independence, and no use of force. The reason that was kind of acceptable to both sides was because it was saying, okay, Taiwan's not going to like be taken over by the PRC, but we're also not going to declare ourselves an independent country. And China was like, all right, as long as we get to keep saying you're a part of us, we're okay with this for now. But part of the official Kuomintang party platform has always been that we are not Taiwanese, we are Chinese, we are the Republic of China, and we will one day reconquer China. They are a Chinese nationalist party. But like I said, that idea has become less and less popular because more and more people are viewing themselves as Taiwanese. Enter the DPP. 
the Democratic Progressive Party, which is not a Chinese nationalist party like the Kuomintang. It is a Taiwanese nationalist party. So their view is that they are not Chinese, they are Taiwanese, and that Taiwan should declare independence and be its own country. They are now the ruling party of Taiwan. And basically the only reason that they have not declared independence is because of the threat of China invading Taiwan, if they do. Well, if China has the second largest military in the world, I don't think they want to mess with that, right? Exactly. Like, it would... They don't want to invite any trouble to themselves. And so while part of the party platform of the DPP is that they want to declare independence, they're worried about what China would do if they did. But even without a declaration of independence, it's still pretty scary for China to see that the DPP, a party that views itself as inherently not Chinese, is the ruling party of Taiwan that has the president and the legislature. And so they've been getting a lot more aggressive, and Xi Jinping in particular has been getting a lot more aggressive. He's been a lot more vocal than his immediate predecessors about Taiwan, calling for the complete reunification, calling it an unswerving historical mission of the party and the common aspiration of the Chinese people. He's very concerned about his legacy in all parts of his presidency. And it seems that he wants to be the guy that finally brings Taiwan back into the fold. He wants to be remembered in history as the guy who did that, which obviously is pretty scary for Taiwan and pretty scary for the United States, which has commitments to Taiwan. The Biden administration has kind of dodged the question. They haven't really given a solid answer about whether or not they would go to war to defend Taiwan as the Chinese authorities get more and more vocal about a desire to reunify Taiwan, possibly forcibly. About the most forceful thing the Biden administration has said is that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said it would be a serious mistake for anyone to try to challenge the existing status quo by force. And so we're in kind of a limbo where we don't really know what's going to happen next. And every party to this is pretty uneasy about it. Am I? I just don't understand what the obsession is. Like China doesn't need Taiwan. Why are they so obsessed with getting Taiwan to be part of their country? Can Why don't they just like accept like a sunk cost. Just let them go. Cut it loose. Am I being too much of a pragmatist here? I think you are uh, being too much of a pragmatist. I think that for most of China's history, the fixation on Taiwan was because Taiwan was a country sitting there saying, we want to conquer you one day, and that's pretty threatening to them. But now as Taiwan moves away from that, I think it's, it's like a point of national pride where like they've been saying for years and years, they've never stopped saying that Taiwan is a part of China. And I think that any, any move towards accepting Taiwan as an independent country would be a major blow to the national pride and the reputation of the party. I get what you're saying. I think it's still unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, you know where I stand on this now. It's like, just let it go. You're not going to win anything like major out of this. Part of the reason that I think that it's like that is because so for 
background for everyone who is listening. I lived in China for a while, so I know a bit about how, you know, actual Chinese people are thinking. I, I married one of them, so I know a bit about that. Most regular Chinese people don't really care about this issue. This is a kind of a thing that the nationalists and the government cares a lot about. And whenever there's social media uproar, it's usually kind of astroturfed. But most Chinese people, if you ask them, they would either be ambivalent about it or they'd be like, oh, yeah, I mean, Taiwan is effectively another country. I mean, like, so there are Taiwanese passports and Taiwanese passports are recognized in China. Like you can enter China on a Taiwanese passport, which is kind of an effective recognition. But like it's okay. it's it's really not something that most people in China are very passionate about, which I think is interesting. Okay, so the people in China don't care. Just like what I said earlier, they're like, okay, just let them be. We don't care. But then there's a ruling group of people that are obsessed with their national pride regarding this issue. I think that's accurate. Okay. Moving on to the East and South China Sea conflicts. So if you're trying to get a, well, I mean, I think the names of those seas are pretty descriptive. The East China Sea is kind of between Taiwan and Japan, and the South China Sea is kind of in that cove that's between like Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. These are territorial disputes based on islands in those seas. In the East China Sea, you have this small archipelago with nobody living on it. In Japan, they call them the Sakaku Islands. In China, they call them the Diaoyu Islands. And they are disputed between China and Japan. Both of them claim to have sovereignty over these islands. And in the South China Sea, there are two archipelagos and then a handful of islands around here. The two archipelagos are the Spratly Islands and the Paracel Islands, and then there are a handful of islands not part of those archipelagos, like the Scarborough Shoal, which are disputed between China and a bunch of other countries in Southeast Asia, namely Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, and Brunei, which all have competing claims over that region. The dispute is not actually about these islands. No one actually really cares about these islands themselves. They care about the water around them. Because under the United Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea, you get not only the 12 miles of territorial waters around all of these islands, if you control them, but you get 200 nautical miles of exclusive economic zone, which is where you have the exclusive rights to things like mining and fishing in those waters. And so these disputes are really about the waters around these islands and not the islands themselves. China recognizes what it calls the Nine Dash Line, which is a U-shaped marking on the map that dates back to the pre-World War II era in China that claims all of these islands in the South China Sea. And they say that almost all of the South China Sea, going pretty close to like the Vietnamese coastline and the Filipino coastline, is all sovereign Chinese waters. And the reason that this is very important economically is because about 80% of Chinese energy imports, that's oil and coal, gets shipped to China through the South China Sea. And about 40% of all Chinese trade goes through the South China Sea. In addition to that, there's possibly up to 17.7 billion barrels of oil under the water there, which is more than Kuwait has. And about 12% of all the fish in the world are caught in the South China Sea. Wow. The East China Sea has similarly large amounts of oil and fish. 
And so these are very valuable waters. And if you are able to control these, then you have the right to either be the only people drilling and fishing there or to you know tax that. And if trade is going through your territorial waters, if it's close enough to any of those islands to go through your territorial waters or your contiguous zone, then you have the ability to charge transit fees. The same way we talked about the Northwest Passage of Canada in that episode. Got it. There's always in any TV show regarding politics, like, I don't know, Madam Secretary, they usually have one or two episodes that include the South China Sea. It's a very um, popular topic among policy wonks. Yeah. So the Nine Dash Line, the Chinese claim, is not recognized internationally. And in fact, the Philippines sued China in international arbitration in The Hague over an island called the Scarborough Shoal, which is near the Philippines, and both countries claim it. And the Hague ruled in favor of the Philippines, saying essentially that the Nine Dash Line is not a legitimate border, that that's not legal, and that most of these waters belong to Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei. China has kind of ignored that (laughs) and said basically, uh, what are you going to do about it? And they are currently working on building up these islands to try to give them more of a claim. So a lot of these places around here were like reefs and underwater shoals and things that legally speaking don't count as islands that can give you a claim on the waters. And so they're taking these reefs and these shoals and they're dragging up sand from the bottom of the ocean and they're dumping it on top of these to try to turn these things into islands so that they can try to have a better claim on the waters around here. Oh my god, that's very sneaky. Yeah, and it's a little disputed about whether artificial islands count for that like even if they are islands if they count they're kind of going with the twin strategy of building up these islands and also saying like what are you going to do about no one can touch us wow the u.s position on this and we are we're allies with the philippines and we're friendly with the other countries around there but our position on this is not actually really that hey we're going to just back up whatever The Philippines says, for instance, our position is mostly about the concept of freedom of navigation, which is a part of international law that says basically, if you just pass through these waters without like stopping or being threatening, if you're not doing it in like to attack someone, then you have the right to just sail through these waters. Like if you were going from Mexico to England, you could sail through the US EEZ around Florida. And as long as you weren't like getting ready to attack America, then you have the right to do that. And that's very important to the United States because we have a lot of, well, our own trade, of course, but also our military transits through this area a lot going between the Middle East and Asia, going between our bases in, for instance, Japan and Bahrain. So we have warships going through this area all the time, and we would like to be able to continue doing that. Legally speaking, our position basically goes like this. Most of the waters around this, even if we accept that these islands are yours, most of the waters around this are not your territorial waters, they're your EEZ. And you don't have the right to stop us from going through your EEZ, your exclusive economic zone. And that these artificial islands do not count as islands. And essentially, you do not have territorial waters around artificial islands, only around natural islands, if we accept that these islands belong to you, which we haven't actually taken a stance on that in either case. 
we've kind of stayed neutral on who the islands actually belong to, but we've enforced those two positions with regards to who can pass through the waters in their ships. Interestingly, the treaty that we're basing this on, the United Nations Convention of the Laws of the Sea, unclosed some people call it, China is a member of the UNCLOS, but the United States is not a member of the UNCLOS, even though we, in practice, enforce the UNCLOS. And the reason that we're not a member is because the Republicans in the Senate will not ratify UNCLOS because of its environmental regulations. Because it tries to protect the environment. Well, yeah, that's unacceptable, of course. Mm, Okay. (laughs) And the third issue I want to move on to is trade and intellectual property. Everyone knows that the United States and China are massive trading partners, although that may be a little bit overblown. I've heard people say that like almost all of our imports come from China. That's not actually true. About 18% of U.S. imports come from China, mostly machinery and electronics, and about 7% of U.S. exports go to China, mostly electrical components like semiconductors, cars, airplanes, medical equipment, and food. One of the worries that you may hear Republicans in particular talking about is the trade deficit, the fact that the U.S. imports so much more than we export from China. And the reason that that's concerning from an economic perspective is because that essentially means that money is leaving the United States and it is not remaining in the United States or coming into the United States to grow our economy. The trade deficit is something that Donald Trump talked a lot about, but something that Barack Obama talked a lot about was that he accused China of currency manipulation, which is where you can control the price of your currency in certain ways, right? Right, Like the Federal Reserve controls the price of the U.S. currency by either releasing more currency or holding back currency and they can make the value of the dollar go up or down. China similarly has central banks that can control the price of their currency. And Barack Obama and also Donald Trump later, but he didn't harp on this as much as he did the trade deficit, accused China of artificially keeping the price of their currency low so that their exports were more competitive on the world market. Essentially making the price of their currency lower so that it was cheaper to buy Chinese products than it was to buy other countries' products. The Obama administration also accused China of using what's called dumping prices, which is essentially where you're trying to break into a market, and so you sell things at such a low price that you put your competitors out of business. Kind of like what many people accuse Amazon of doing. Yeah, exactly. Amazon's have been accused of using dumping prices a lot. And similarly to our trade disputes with Canada we talked about, the United States also doesn't like the way that China subsidizes a lot of businesses to make it cheaper for these businesses to operate and kind of make them, they view it, the U.S. views it as unfair compared to U.S., how the U.S. treats businesses makes it unfair competition. I'm not totally sympathetic to that one because I'm going to like, yeah, I mean, you're supporting businesses within your country, and that that seems like something you should be allowed to do. We provide a lot of subsidies to businesses in the United States, so I'm not totally sympathetic to that complaint. Excuse me, we subsidize the research of a lot of pharmaceuticals and vaccines, and they get to charge whatever the hell they want for their products. Yeah, I don't know that, like, I don't think it's that valid for us to say, hey, China shouldn't be subsidizing these businesses. Exactly. I think that if the currency manipulation and the dumping prices, if those are real 
things that are happening. And like China denies that, of course. But if those are real, those are more concerning. I agree with you. Subsidizing, you can see it as investing in their own people and their own businesses. Exactly. Exactly. Like that's just building up their economy and they should be allowed to do that. Donald Trump, of course, tried to force China to stop these practices using his trade wars where he put tariffs on a bunch of Chinese products. That was very ineffective, though. One reason that it was ineffective was because doing something like that kind of hurts both economies, right? But Donald Trump had a much shorter time span to work with than China did. Xi Jinping would have been able to talk to, you know, the Politburo Standing Committee and say, hey, we're going to like ride this out for a little while and then things are going to get better. And they're, you know, kind of technocratic people. They would have been like, yeah, that's let's ride this out for a little bit and then it'll get better in the long run. This is the best thing for us to do is to ride this out. While Donald Trump had to run for a re-election pretty soon. And so he had a lot more pressure to end the trade war faster than China did. And that gave China a lot more leverage. That also allowed the government to sell it to the people in China as U.S. imperialism. Instead of saying, hey, you're hurting because of things we did, they were able to say to the people, hey, if you're feeling any pain from this, if you're seeing any price increases, it's because the U.S. is trying to destroy our country and we're not going to let them. And because they found ways to kind of get around it. One way that they were able to get around Donald Trump's tariffs was, say, you're building a cell phone. They would build it to like 90% completion in China and then ship it to Chinese-owned factories in like Vietnam or Malaysia, finish it there, get the made in Vietnam stamp, and then ship it to the United States and not have to pay Donald Trump's tariffs. Smart. It is smart for them, not for Trump, really, which is not not surprising. (laughs) And so Trump's trade war was basically completely ineffective. He got some very minor concessions regarding tariffs and subsidies from China, which were basically just just enough that Donald Trump could say he got something, but not really anything that made any substantive difference. There was nothing to address the allegations of currency manipulation or dumping prices, and none of the tariffs or subsidies that China had had in place before the trade war were substantially different. But then the products being imported from China would have had to be more expensive because then they had to take two trips, one to, let's say, Vietnam, in your example, and then to the US, no? They would have been a little more expensive, but still less expensive than if they had had to pay the import tariffs in the United States. Yes, but then you continue... Or like the the companies here continue importing them, but then they are going to have to pay more and therefore pass those price increases over to the consumer, right? Yes, yes. That's that's kind of like where I was going. Yes, those price increases did still get passed to consumers. And there were other items that were not as applicable to that kind of thing that still got shipped directly from China. And then that cost got passed on to the consumer. And there were a bunch of businesses in the United States that exported things to China. Like I said, we do export things to China, you know, electronics, food, medical equipment and stuff. And they, because China was putting counter tariffs on to kind of like, hey, if you're going to tariff us, we're going to tariff you. They had to pay more to ship their stuff to China. And so it really wasn't great for US businesses. So it screwed everybody over here, basically. The consumer paying more for anything that was imported and then businesses here paying more to export their products to China. Yeah, and there was there were some price increases in China, 
on things like pork, for instance, had a price increase, and that was kind of paired with a disease that was going around Chinese pork at the same time, which was not great because that those two things together led to pork getting really expensive for a few months in China. But even though people were noticing that and starting to feel that, like I said, they were able to pass it off as, hey, this is, you know, this is a sacrifice you're making for your country to fight U.S. imperialism. So regarding the accusations of currency manipulation and dumping prices, China denies those. They say that they're not happening. And China accuses the United States and all of our beefs with them regarding trade, they accuse the United States of just trying to stifle China's economy. Basically, going back to that quote from Joe Biden in the beginning where he said, China wants to be the wealthiest country in the world, that's not going to happen on my watch. One way to interpret that is to say that I'm going to build up the United States. One way to interpret that is to say I'm going to like try to beat down China. And China accuses the United States of looking at that second way, the way that it's saying, I'm going to beat down China. And they say that all of these complaints the U.S. has about their trade is just kind of trying to keep China from growing. Um, They also criticize the United States for blacklisting a number of Chinese companies, which is where these companies aren't allowed to do business in the United States. And this is mostly because of things like human rights abuses, like companies that are involved in the genocide of the Uyghurs, for instance. Joe Biden just added a bunch more Chinese companies are involved in that in what's going on in Xinjiang to the blacklist. And China says that that is yeah, worse than anything that the United States has to complain about, that that's basically completely blocking out these companies. And of course, they deny the human rights abuses that are usually at the backbone of these blacklists. But that is that's what their complaints about the United States are. Yeah, I was gonna I don't know if you saw my question, but I was gonna ask our guest yesterday, Mr. Fresh Mary about it. But we ran out of time. He interviewed somebody that said that there were no abuses, according to him. It was interesting. Yeah, China denies the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, but they are pretty well documented. Uh, there's a lot of firsthand testimony, a lot of witnesses and people who have oh, yeah. come out of there. And, and I know that the like satellite images show a lot of things and everything, but I just thought it was interesting because... He interviewed this Italian guy, I think it was, that said that, no, everything's okay. There's nothing going on. Yeah, some people say that, and there's like a number of different motivations for that, I think. Like, there's some people that are just inclined not to trust what the U.S. says about China. And they generally, uh, like, they generally deny that. And... There are some people who just have like a business interest, you know, like think, you know, but going back to John Cena's apology video, there's some people that just have a business interest in China and don't want to upset them. Um, yeah, no, it was just a super interesting that I'm like, huh. Um, yeah, to me, it's it's pretty disappointing that there are so many people that are so willing to completely pass off a basically a cultural genocide. Um and, you know, a lot of people will look at it and they'll say, oh, well, what about the United States? What about the genocide of the Native Americans? And I'm like, yeah, that's also bad. Yeah, like, we're not both saying that it's okay bad. if you do it here, but it's not over there. No, we're, it's wrong everywhere. Yeah. No, I totally get it. So to give China some credit on the trade front, they have backed off a little bit on restrictions on foreign businesses. You may have heard about this when Tesla was moving into China. 
There are basically some provisions about the way that foreign businesses, if they want to do business in China, have to partner with Chinese companies because they don't want foreign businesses to come in and basically like start taking over the markets. They want Chinese companies to still dominate the markets. And just about every other country and company that wanted to do business in China always complained about that because it makes it harder for foreign businesses to do business in China. They have backed off on that a little bit because backing off on that more just encourages more and more businesses to bring more and more money into the company. And they now view it as more profitable to relax these restrictions than to maintain them, which is something that the U.S. is glad about. On a related note, another issue is the issue of intellectual property. The United States has accused China and Chinese companies of stealing a lot of American and European intellectual property through force transfers, cyber attacks, and espionage. China denies, just like with the currency manipulation and the dumping prices, China denies that they're doing that. They deny that there are any cyber attacks or espionage to steal um to steal intellectual property and they deny that there's any force transfer outside of like necessary regulatory kind of stuff and that they're not using it to gain an unfair advantage. They say that all of the technology that people say was stolen is actually homegrown, but there's a lot of doubt about that. Surely like some of it probably is homegrown. Like there's probably a mixture, like some of these things that people say was stolen were probably homegrown and some of them probably actually were stolen. A pretty good example is in 2009, there was a cyber attack against the Pentagon, which US intelligence analysts think was perpetrated by Chinese intelligence. In that cyber attack, they stole data relating to the F-35, the F-22, and the V-22 Osprey. And they believe that they used that data from the F-35 in particular to develop their own J-31 stealth fighter jets using kind of the way that the airplane is structured to deflect radar and the radar absorbing material and the other the other features that make it more stealthy they think that they stole that and used it to build their own fighter jet a lot of people on the internet will compare the two jets and like show that they look pretty similar um i mean i think most fighter jets do look pretty similar but the the u.s intelligence community seems to strongly believe that that was the case and so we've got the issue of Taiwan, we've got the issue of the South and East China Sea, we've got the issue of trade, and we've got the issue of intellectual property. And those are four things that you're probably going to hear about in the news a lot more as we pull out from the Middle East and China becomes a much larger focus of U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. media and the U.S. government. And so I hope that that's a pretty good overview of those, those issues. That was fantastic. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Ian, thank you for that really thorough explanation. Now I want to know who we're going to talk about who's an expert on this topic. So we are going to talk to Sarwar Kashmari, who is a professor of political science at Norwich University and a fellow in the Norwich University Peace and War Center. He's been a commentator on cable news, CNN, and MSNBC and stuff like that, talking about foreign policy. And he's the author of multiple books, including books about the U.S. relationship to China. And he hosts a series of live streams and webinars about China. And just yesterday, actually, released a new report about the U.S. outlook towards China and the way he thinks that the U.S. could change the way that we look at this potential conflict. Excellent. Let's go. 
So thank you for joining us today. Um, the first thing I want to ask you is the Chinese Communist Party recently celebrated its 100th anniversary. And with that perspective to look back on, how would you summarize where China is today? And also, how would you say that the current paramount leader, Xi Jinping, is different from the paramount leaders that have come before him? So uh, as far as where the 100th anniversary, that's a really interesting uh, question that you asked there, uh, there Ian. Uh, so China, if you go back and look at their 4,000-year history, there were only 125 years when China was really in the doldrums. And that was the 120 or 50 years that they were colonized, that uh, they were brutalized, where, uh, uh, you know, uh, they were made into opium addicts. Uh, but if you take the remainder of that history, besides that short period of time, China has always had the largest economy in the world and has been the most influential country in Asia. So I'm in the camp of those people who believe, historians and, and economists and uh, geopolitical scientists, I'm in the camp of those who believe that China is simply returning to where it has been for 4,000 years, for most of 4,000 years. Right? So, uh, so it is today, uh, fast becoming the uh, richest economy in the world, the richest country in the world. Uh, it's because it's the military power in Asia. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, uh, so militarily, economically, uh, influence-wise, and as far as the Communist Party's 100th anniversary, it is today even more popular than it was eight years ago, as a recent Harvard study points out. So that's kind of that situation. And where China is in one sentence, eyeball to eyeball with the United States. There is no way to stop where China is going. Uh, we need to deal with China uh, as an equal. Uh, and I guess that's how I'd summarize it. It seems that the United States is definitely taking note of what you're talking about. And after 20 years of focusing almost all of our attention on the Middle East, the United States is almost completely withdrawn from Afghanistan withdrawing from Iraq, kind of backing off from the Middle East. Right. The Obama administration previously had tried to pivot to Asia, at least rhetorically, but largely was still consumed with Middle Eastern issues as ISIS became an issue and whatnot. As the United States disengages from the Middle East, do you think that that diplomatic and military attention is being refocused to China and East Asia? I believe, uh, Ian, that that is the intention of the administration to do so. Uh, I don't envy the administrations uh, navigating this very difficult, uh, very difficult path, because on the one hand, it, it, just leaving from Afghanistan is going to be politically so difficult. I mean, already people are starting to say who lost Afghanistan as if there was something to win there in the first place. And the same thing is going to happen in the Middle East. But his path, I believe, is the right one. Uh, because America has so many strengths that there's no reason at all uh, that uh, that uh, to be concerned, to be afraid, to be worried about China. I think they will. Uh, uh, I believe that there will be these two superpowers, China and America. Uh, and America has so many strengths, and hopefully, lessening the uh, connection with the Middle East, withdrawing from Afghanistan, will give the cycles the time necessary for the. Uh, Biden leadership to deal with, with China. 
that's kind of where I wanted to take you, uh, because after the G7 summit, NATO declared that China presents a global security risk and demands that all NATO member countries spend more resources dealing with China's growing uh, global influence. So what is the best way right now for the United States to handle such an important relationship with with a country that's also a trading partner, but keeping in mind what was said at the G7? Well, Tono, that's a really, really good question because it impacts on so many issues. Let me deal with the NATO statement first, right? I don't mean to make light of it, but to me, it's so far-fetched that an organization, i.e. NATO, that couldn't fight and almost lost a war with Libya, a fifth-rate military, and is thinking now of taking on China. You know, one has to sit back and say, where do these people, uh, what do they get up in the morning and smoke? You know, so so that's how I would answer the NATO question. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's relevant. I don't think they'll make any impact. Uh, and I think they'll become a larger laughing stock amongst the military uh, segments of the world. So that's on the uh, on the NATO side. Uh, and as far as uh, the United States is concerned, I think the first thing that has to be done is to face reality, that China is a growing economy. Nothing can stop them excepting China, that America needs to look China in the eye take its strengths. And I'll give you one example of what I mean by strengths. China recently uh, put a space uh, capsule uh, capsule into space, a station into space, right? And they showed all these people around screens managing the station. Do you remember when the American capsule landed on rover, uh, on, I'm sorry, on Mars? Uh, and there was this uh, drone that took off, you know? And NASA showed inside the control room I mean, what did you see? The woman in charge of this whole project was from Bangladesh. There were two Indian scientists that were there. There were people from Ghana. There were Americans, right? So you see the Chinese side of it, and it's all Chinese. Nothing wrong with that. But to me, that's a huge strength. China has a population of a billion, 300 million, roughly. But America draws its talent from the remaining five and a half billion people of the world. I give you one example of what I mean by we need to build on our strengths, not look enviously at someone else or so on. You know, we can take them on. We can take anybody on. We are not going to disappear just because China rises. But one needs to face reality. What do you think the implications of a new Cold War with China would be if it seems that the political forces in the United States and China both, if they're both becoming increasingly nationalistic, and both seem to be um, choosing to push forward towards this new Cold War. What do you think that would mean for the rest of the world? First of all, I think the, the phrase Cold War, Ian, uh, is totally misapplied in this case. And it's misapplied and can be very dangerous. I mean, the Cold War uh, started, uh, the phrase started uh, during, the, uh, uh, during the tussle with the Soviet Union. Right. I mean, that's where all of this stuff. And the phrase Cold War comes from a very famous American diplomat, George Kennan, who wrote a long telegram to the State Department and said, listen, don't go about picking a fight, spending money on a war with 
the Soviet Union, they're basically a bankrupt country and they'll implode, just keep them contained. That's where this, uh, uh, this uh, phrase, Cold War, comes from. And by the way, his telegram to the State Department describing all this uh, was called uh, the Long Telegram. And so our Foreign Policy Association report is a takeoff on that. We call it the telegram, right? So the reason why it's not a good comparison is, first of all, if you take a look at the trade we were doing with the Soviet Union, the United States, in the best year, the best year of trade with the Soviet Union, America does that trade in a day with China. That's economically, financially a huge difference. Right. The second part of it is that China, that the Soviet Union never had the industrial strength, the ability to create things, uh, to have an economy that produced anything but poverty. Right. None of that. So calling it a Cold War is a inaccurate and b lets people think that oh well you know just like the Soviet Union, why well, China is going to collapse? We're going to come out on top. That's not how we'll come out on top, I believe. We need to be, as I said earlier, fixing on our strengths, looking reality in the face, and moving on from there. So I would scratch that Cold War. I talked to one of the most famous geopolitical scientists in China in, this, in writing this report, and he told me the best thing we can do to, to ease relationships between China and America is to forget the phrase Cold War. Well, what do you think would be the implications then of of a sustained political conflict between the United States and China for the rest of the world? Are you saying uh, that uh, the conflict as to who will be the most influential in the rest of the world? Yes, if uh, if the U.S. and Chinese governments continue to increasingly become more and more nationalistic and increasingly gear their policy towards competition with the other. I think it would uh, impact America more than it will impact China. Uh, I think it will impact America. It will impact America's standard of living uh, because our biggest trading partners until we are, uh, is uh, our biggest trade is the transatlantic trade, right? That's, that's where a lot of money is made and so on. Well, beginning this year, the trade of the European Union with China is more than the trade with America. Right. Another source of wealth into America is what other countries invest, right? because that's a long-term commitment that companies make. So this year, for the first time in uh, April, the inflow of outside money into China exceeds what it is in America. Right? So ultimately, Asia is China's biggest trading partner. Europe now is China's biggest trading partner. So it behooves Americas to start cooling this rhetoric and not getting American people so involved in thinking of China as the evil empire that then politically it becomes impossible to do anything to for the relationship. So uh, as much as I hate to do it, I think the uh, onus is on the United States to take the first step. Since we're in the topic of trade, I want to ask for your opinion on what makes sense to manufacture in the U.S. and what makes sense to keep manufacturing in China, since this was so controversial, let's call it, over the last, you know, administration and something that continues in the, during the Biden years. Well, you should have Mr. Trump and, uh, and Mr. Sanders here for that question, uh, Tara, but... but uh, <laughs> But, you know, world trade has always operated, 
under the premise that people will enjoy a better life and make money and increase standards of living if free trade is allowed to flow, right? So there's a reason. I mean, think about it in practical terms, right? Would, would, would I go out uh, and buy these twinkling lights over Christmas that I, that I put over my house like everybody else does? I love the dear things. I mean, if they cost $500, would I buy these lights? No. I mean, the Wall Street Journal did an editorial, I think about two years ago, that said that, that uh, China is probably more responsible for controlling inflation than the Federal Reserve. I remember the, I don't remember the exact wording of it, but that was the gist of their editorial. So it makes no sense to say, let's, you know, make shoes laces here when they can be imported you know, and we can do other things with it. The problem, uh, Tana, I believe, is that, that we've not paid enough attention to what are people going to do to transition to the digital economy, to the new economy. And it's all well and good to say that, you know, countries can manufacture uh, what they can do cheaply, that America will be in services, digital economy, new jobs will be created. But I think the government needs to help us get there. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's what I believe. So would would that be something like the bill that was recently passed uh, through Congress that had provided, I think, what, what was it, like half a billion dollars for for research and investments, so um, semiconductors and all that? Is that the kind of legislation that you're talking about? Not not just the legislation, but that's that's part of it. I think we need to create a national strategy on how to get a generation of Americans in the future to be able to compete in the world economy, right? I mean, why are the majority of the people who are going into technical schools uh, Asian Americans, right? Or people coming from China? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people coming from China to go to school, to study engineering, uh, you know, uh, technology and all of that. That we need to be focusing on that. So there should be money on education. There should be money on transition jobs there should be you know we might have to give money to poor american families lower middle class american families for 15 years right to get us to that stage but we need to do that so while most of the discourse i think is um centered around what seems to be an unstoppable upward trajectory of china's economy uh some some less optimistic commentators have pointed to what they view as major under-the-surface challenges China's facing, specifically uh, water shortages, an aging population, and what some characterize as a potential housing bubble that they think could arrest that upward trajectory. How serious do you think those challenges are? My own feeling is that the Chinese, that China's rise and China's technological mastery and China's influence in the world is China's to lose. If it is not able to handle many of the issues that you brought up that a lot of people bring about, then it's going to pay the price for that. I don't think we need to be getting, getting involved in trying to figure out for the Chinese what their problems are. So far, they've been so darn good at taking the problems we've outlined for them and fixing them. So we need to focus on how we are going to use our strengths in the future against a rising China. 
And if China collapses or something happens, and that's another problem that we can deal with if that happens. But we need to be fixed now on American strengths. And there are huge, huge financial markets, right? Huge economy. We're a continental nation. We don't rely on uh, exports as much as most countries because uh, we consume so much in this, right? We have the sophistication. Why does China, why is China courting the biggest names on Wall Street? Because they'd like to build up their expertise in all of these areas. So Ian, I believe that we need to be, the U.S. needs to be focusing on its strength going forward and paying attention to what China is doing, but not worrying about their problems. They can take care of them. Yeah, Matthew Iglesias from Vox, in his book, he said a similar thing where he talked about that the momentum of China is not inevitable, but it's not something that the United States can stop. It's something that China would, it would be up to their decisions, and we can't control what their decisions are. We can only control what our own decisions are. We're about to have our time, but before we go, do you want to go ahead and tell us where people can download that report that came out yesterday at time of release? Uh, yes, the, the report will be released uh, 9.30 Eastern time uh, uh, on, on the 19th of July, right? As soon as it's released, it'll be on my website, kashmiri.com, uh, and on the Foreign Policy Association's website, fpa.org. So it's kashmiri.com. So on the 20th, you can go and download it at no cost. It's also being sent, by the way, to all the relevant committees of Congress, to all the people, think tanks that, uh, uh, that, uh, that deal with it. You know, it'll be sent to all the relevant congressional committees and so on. So, uh, but the best way to do is go to my website, kashmiri.com. How else can people find you online? Kashmiri.com. And it has, uh, it has my email. It has a way to Perfect. contact me. Right. And uh, uh, yeah, well, you're so nice to deal with this. It's a hugely important topic. Uh, and, and I'm in the camp of those people who really think America has so many strengths. Time to focus on this and forget about this, all this squealing stuff about, my God, they're stealing this, they're doing that. You know, that's not what America is. You sound like a therapist that tells people you need to focus on yourself instead of like blaming all the other people for your problems. <laughs> Donna, you expressed it better than I could. Well, now you can say it to other people. This is like, I am the China, the US therapist that tells people that they need to figure their own problems and then worry about everything else. Absolutely. So uh, interesting to, for you to know is that what uh, the, my next step after this report is I'm going to ask people from China and Asia and Europe uh, to become host on my video podcast program and question me about my report. That's the next step. Excellent. Interesting take. What do you think? That's a great idea. And I hope there's a, there's a link to your YouTube channel at your website so that people can watch you. There is actually. Excellent. Yeah. And of course, if I cannot answer some questions, I'll switch it off. But, uh, but other than that, <laughs> well, I hope I've answered most of your questions. Uh, I think reality is what we need to face up to. Uh, but hey, that's what America's good at. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Real honor to be with you again and uh, to try and feel your questions anytime. Okay? okay. Bye. Bye. Okay, Ian. We now, I feel like our listeners now have 
a lot more understanding about why China is such a big deal. But since this is a topic that you're particularly interested and have a lot of expertise on, I want to know what your favorite part about our conversation with Mr. Kashmiri was. I think he raised a point which is historically significant, which I think that a lot of people don't often realize, which is the degree to which China has always been one of the dominant players in the world, or arguably the dominant player in the world. Throughout almost all of history, China was the most powerful and wealthiest country in the world. And it was only a relatively short amount of time, starting in like the 1800s, that Europe overtook China and China stopped being the most powerful and wealthy country in the world for a while. And so in a way, you could look at this as China just kind of retaking that mantle. Um, interestingly, also, did you not through all of recorded history, like going back to the earliest time anyone ever wrote anything down to today, China has always been the most populous country in the world. And in the next few years, India is expected to overtake them in population. And that will be the first time ever that China was not the most populous country in the world. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, that doesn't necessarily mean much if India is slightly larger than China. But that, that is interesting, I think. <laughs> what was your favorite part of this conversation, Sylvia? I, I liked learning more from him, but I really liked how... The conclusion that I came to at the end that he's just basically telling the U.S. that they have to figure out their own problems and and stop worrying so much about pointing fingers at other people, a.k.a. countries in this case. And it's funny because it seems like at the end of our conversation, he hadn't figured it out the way like I did. I'm like, no, everything that you pointed out throughout our conversation was the U.S. needs to figure out their own problems and not point fingers at China. And it's the same thing that you and I have talked about a lot throughout this podcast and every time we get together, that the U.S. has a lot of issues that it needs to figure out, but we obsess over pointing out what's wrong with somebody else. Yeah, and like I paraphrased Matthew Iglesias when we were talking about that, you know, even if you do want to frame it as competition with China, you can't do that by controlling China. We don't have the ability to control China. We only have the ability to control ourselves. Exactly. Be sure to tune in next week, guys, because we're going to be talking to Lulu Cycli, who is a former congressional candidate here in Texas, and she ran with her number one issue being healthcare. So we're going to talk about the price of healthcare in the United States. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. If you're on a platform that allows for you to leave a rating and a review, please do so, and please share us with a family, friend, or coworker. Excellent. Talk to you next week. See you next week. Bye.